He is good, isn't he? He's a great God. If I've not met you before, my name's Steve. It's my privilege to be the pastor here. We're delighted to have you. And I've got a couple brief announcements. One is, we're very excited that this morning our, uh, our young people, our, our high schoolers and our middle schoolers are getting to meet again. So we started construction. They lost their room. They have not been able to meet here on Sunday mornings. They've just been meeting midweek. Uh, but starting this morning, they are out under the pavilion. You may have seen them out there. So our high schoolers are out there now at the 930 hour. Our middle schoolers will be out there at 11. And so we wanted, because typically that's a great place for us to go and connect with one another and there's games and we'll get back to that but what I've been asked to politely tell you is that uh, it's probably not a good place for you to gather right now Uh, so like if they have cookies out there they're not for you Uh, so and I'm, I'm, I apologize. We look forward to getting that back. But uh, they really, uh, right now, and if you hang out there, you might get overrun by a bunch of high schoolers too. So there's that. Uh, secondly, if you weren't with us last weekend, uh, we mentioned that as a church that uh, we are taking a trip over to Israel, which is kind of interesting ahead of this week, right? We'll talk about that in a moment. And uh, we had brochures, and I actually ran out during this service last week, and so I've got some more up here. But obviously, a lot of events have unfolded. So it was uh, Friday night, Tammy and I were crawling into bed. That's usually when I get my iPad out and go to Twitter or X or whatever it's there. Oh, by the way, Wade and Shannon. So if you've never met Wade and Shannon, we're, they're, they're like Desert Springs in Nicaragua. That's who they are. They're part of our church. There are missionaries there and uh, head up a ministry. And it's great to have you guys here this weekend. Uh, they've been back since, what, September. Uh, their first Sunday here because we're very low on their totem pole. <clears throat> Uh, but uh, they're going to be traveling out again this week, but they'll be around. Make sure if you've got, not gotten to know them that you do that. But uh, so I was uh, just looking on Twitter uh, to kind of see what's going on in the world and started to see about the attack that was happening there in Israel. And on the one hand, you know, it's not surprising. So I got to go to Israel the very first time in 1972. I know some of you weren't developing eyelids yet, uh, but uh, I got to go as, a, as an eighth grader. And of course, the very next year, uh, which was 50 years ago right now, the Yom Kippur War. And, and then typically, every time we've gone, right, there's, there's skirmishes and all. And I think this one is probably a, a little worse. As far as it deals with the trip, you know, one of the things that you see if you study the wars of, of Israel, because it's such a small country, they typically are over in a fairly quick amount of time. And, uh, and then it's good. So I think, you know, God willing, we'll be able to go. But this ties in so much with what we're talking about in the book of Revelation. And I understand that for for some people, maybe you're new to Christianity, uh, maybe you're new to a Bible-believing church that that looks at some of these things in, in Revelation is still prophetic. 
And what I get asked often is about why, why does the evangelical church support Israel so much? And so I thought maybe this would be just a really good morning as we're going we're gonna to be in Revelation chapter 5, but this is really kind of at the heart of the study of the book of Revelation. Talk about it a little bit. So our view of the Bible is, is that as you are able to interpret it literally, you do so. That does not mean that there's not figurative language. Obviously, there is. And so when you come to figurative language, it's meant to be figurative, and that's how you do it. There are other things that God has promised and done that we think are literal promises. And so, for instance, there are promises. We looked last week at Isaiah chapter 11 about the wolf lying down with the lamb and this time of great peace and somebody from, from David's descendants ruling and it's going to be a wonderful time here on the earth. And those are promises that God had made to Abraham. Those are promises God made to David. Those are promises God made to his, his people. And yet they are today promises that have not been literally fulfilled. Now, some in their understanding of Scripture would say, well, the church has replaced Israel in God's plan, and so all of that is just kind of spiritual stuff. And on our side, we go, no, God made those promises to Israel, and those things are going to be literally fulfilled. And so when we look at the four major things that happen in the book of Revelation, you have the tribulation period, then you have the second coming of Christ, then you have the millennial kingdom. And we believe it's during those thousand years where God is literally going to fulfill these promises to the nation of Israel. And so with that, when you look back to some of the prophecies in the Old Testament, specifically Ezekiel chapter 37. Ezekiel 37, if you're not familiar with it, you probably really are and don't even know it. Right? Have you ever heard the song about the toe bone connected to the foot bone and the foot bone to the ankle bone and all that? It actually comes out of Ezekiel 37. And a lot more people know the, know the song than they knew, know the, the prophecy. Ezekiel was taken to a valley full of just bones everywhere, dried up old bones. And he's asked, can these bones live? And Ezekiel says, I don't know, you know. And God gives the command and the bones start coming back together and skeletons are made and then flesh comes and skin comes. And, and in fact, the interesting part of this is that the bodies are all formed, but there is no breath in them. And what God tells Ezekiel is this is what's going to happen with Israel. It's going to be like it can never be put back, and yet God is going to put it back together as a nation. And so we look at the events of 1948 as the literal fulfillment of Ezekiel 37. That for over 2,000 years, Israel had not been a sovereign nation. They had been scattered throughout the world. And yet God allowed them to maintain their national identity, brought them back to their homeland, and made them a nation again. Oh, by the way, that has never, ever happened in human history. But 1948 happened to Israel. And so we would see that as the literal fulfillment of Ezekiel 37, that in the last days, God is going to bring um, 
Israel back and make them a nation again. And so as evangelicals, obviously, we think then that God's got a future for the nation of Israel. And so that's why America, because there's been a lot of Christian influence, has been one of the America or Israel's greatest friends and supporters, and that's why we look at. Now, having said that, I will tell you that I do think as as evangelicals, we maybe have gone a little overboard in that Messiah is not running Israel today, right? They're they're not perfect. And not everything they do is right or correct, just like any other nation, right? We live in this fallen world, and sometimes we need to be able to acknowledge that also. But our, our, our desire, our belief is, is that God is preparing us, and that is another reason why we know we are in these last moments, because Israel has become a nation again. They now have the temple site, which is kind of interesting. As you start looking at some of what Hamas is putting out, even about what's going on now, they're calling this the um, Al-Aqsa flood. And if you go to Israel and you go to the temple site, you have the Dome of the Rock and you have the Al-Aska Mosque there. And what they're saying is, is Israel's getting ready to rebuild the third temple. And so we're trying to defeat and destroy Israel so they can't build that temple. Well, the interesting piece as we get into the book of Revelation during this tribulation time, guess what? There's a third temple. We don't know if it's going to be rebuilt before the tribulation or during the first three and a half years of the tribulation, but we know it will be there because ultimately the Antichrist is going to desecrate the place. See, all this plays into it. Exactly how? We don't know. But what we are told to do in Scripture is to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And that's what I hope that you will do. I also, I think one of the things that we as evangelicals have gotten wrong is that we paint all Palestinians with kind of the same brush. And having been there, can I, well, let me put it this way. As an American, do you agree and fully support everything that our government does? I didn't think so. And though obviously there are a a, a lot of Palestinians who are trying to bring about the destruction of Israel, there's a lot that aren't, and that's not their heart. And can I just remind all of us that God loves, died for them too, and they need Jesus just as much as anybody else. And so as we pray, we need to pray for that also. Um, My sense is it's going to get really ugly here in the next days and weeks. Uh, One of the things you do see if you ever study the wars of Israel, they tend to be fairly short. But this is the first time the uh, Knesset has actually authorized war in 50 years. The last time was in 1973. And that was about a 20-day war. And so we need to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. My hope is, is that 
peace will be established and that you know a year from now we're going to be able to go and and be able to see all the things that are there and be excited in fact we'll go to a place one of the places that we go is called the temple institute where they're creating things that will be used in that next temple kind of interesting but it all ties into the book of revelation We've looked at Daniel chapter 9 where Daniel is told there are 70 groups of 7 years that are determined upon your people. 69 of those have taken place. There's one left. When is it? Tribulation. It's what the heart of Revelation is all about. So folk, I said it last week. I'm telling you again. I don't know how all this is going to play out, but I know that we are living in these days. Now let me go one more more place. Eh. Because somebody came up and asked me last week, and this is a little deeper, um, and if you're all new to this, you may, this may be brand new. Ezekiel 37 is Israel becoming a nation again. They, they have flesh, they have skin, but there's no breath. Ezekiel 38 is how God begins to give them breath. And by breath is, is to bring them back to the Messiah. We've already talked about last week that now there are over a million Jews who have come to believe in Jesus the Messiah. But in Ezekiel 38, one of the trigger events that begins to happen, which again, when you look at the tribulation, during the tribulation, there's a massive turning to Christ and believing in Jesus the Messiah. One of those events though, is a war. It's called the War of Gog and Magog. It's Russia, Turkey, Iran, Persia, uh, and a few others. The question is, is what we're seeing right now that war? My first sense is probably not. But you never know what it can morph into. Um, Because that war, the war of Gog and Magog, we don't know exactly when it takes place. Does it happen before the tribulation, during the tribulation, or even later on? Uh, My sense is because it's about turning Israel's heart back to the Lord. It probably happens before the tribulation time. So is that it? Don't know. Don't think so. But again, just another something to kind of keep your eye on. Aren't you glad Jesus is in control? We need to pray for the peace. Of Jerusalem. If you got your Bibles, we are in Revelation chapter 5. And if you weren't with us last week, I would highly encourage you to go back. I know I, I try not to do that, right? Like you missed it. But if you don't understand the seven seal book, the seven seal scroll, you're going to miss the heart of the book of Revelation. So in chapter 4, we have the scene of the throne room of heaven, right? The sights, the sounds, the, uh, the feels of all what it be, is like to be in God's presence. And that leads us into chapter 5 when all of a sudden in his hand is a seven-sealed scroll or seven-sealed book. What we talked about is this scroll. So historically with Israel, but very specifically in the time of John, this is exactly how the Romans did legal proceedings, whether they were leases or marriages or divorce decrees or land deals, they were done in a scroll. And it was 
It was sealed with seals. In fact, in the Roman world, seven seals. So this seems to be some type of a legal document. It's written on the inside, so you would break a seal, you would open, you would read, you would break another seal, you would open, and you would read. But we're also told that it's written on the outside. So most likely what this is, it's, it's like a title deed. It's probably the best way I could explain it. That written on the outside is the one who is who is the the right has the right ability to be able to open or to redeem this piece of property and what i think it is it's not about the redemption of our souls because jesus has already died He's going to see the lamb as has been slain, so who has already redeemed from every tribe, kindred. That's what we're going to see. So I don't think it's about the physical or spiritual redemption of people. What I think it has to deal with, it has to deal with the earth. See, when God created the earth, he created man, and he told man, you are to rule and subdue. That's the way this was supposed to be. Man, though, put himself under the authority of Satan. Instead of standing in truth and taking authority over the world and the creation, he, subservient, he, he became subservient to the enemy. Satan became the prince and power of, the, of this world, prince and power of the air, the god of this age. What the tribulation is, it's the executing of these judgments to prepare the world for Satan to be bound and now man, oh, by the way, the Messiah, to be in his rightful place as the one who will rule and reign. And oh, by the way, as we see, we get to rule and reign with him. That's the heart of Revelation chapter 5. Now, let's read the whole chapter. I, I said from verse 5 on to 14, but just in case you weren't here, let's start with verse 1. I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy? to open the book and to break its seals. And no one in heaven on earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look in it. Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. Into it. And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain having seven horns and seven eyes which are the seven spirits of God sent out unto all the earth and he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne and when he had taken the book the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb each one holding a harp and a golden bowl full of incense which are the prayers of the saints and they sang a new song saying worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God and they will reign upon the earth then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne 
and the living creatures and the elders and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing and every created thing which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever and the four living creatures kept saying amen and the elders fell down and worshiped so we have this scene we have this scene in heaven when no one is worthy and by the way it's a strong angel no one is worthy John begins to weep and the idea is he weeps hysterically he weeps uncontrollably and an elder says don't weep right kind of interesting command you remember who else said don't weep Jesus Jesus when he's going in to raise Jairus' daughter from the dead right they're all weeping don't weep she's not dead she's only asleep they laughed in the scorn another time they're going in person's dead don't weep why it's not appropriate they're not dead that's the whole idea it's not appropriate because one is worthy and, and this is what he's going to look at and so he describes one has been found stop weeping here in verse 5 behold the lion that is from the tribe of judah the root of david has overcome so as to open the book so jesus is the one who is worthy first of all because of who he is there's two things that it tells us here number one he's the descendant of judah and you go why on god's green earth is that important ah we got to go back to jewish history god chose a man abraham who, by the way, had no children. And through you, I'm going to create a great nation. And through you, all the nations of the world are going to be blessed. And oh, by the way, it's another reason why as evangelicals, we want to support Israel. And those that bless you will be blessed. And those that curse you will be cursed. He had a son. His name was Isaac. Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau. God said to Jacob... That's where the promise is going to go. Jacob has 12 sons. By the way, by the end of his life, they all end up down in Egypt. Jacob's name now has been changed to Israel. And as Jacob or Israel is getting ready to die, he calls his sons together. And over each one, he pronounces a blessing, a prophetic blessing. This is what he says about Judah. Now, what you've got to understand, Judah is not the firstborn. The firstborn is usually the one of power, the one who's going to have the double blessing. That's Reuben. He doesn't get it. But when he comes to Judah, he says Judah is a lion's whelp, right? The roar. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He couches, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion, who dares rouse him up? The scepter, the the, the sign of authority of who's in charge shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. Israel, in faith, in prophecy, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, said the ruler of Israel is going to come through Judah. Well, 
fast forward. Who becomes the great king of Israel? David. Oh, by the way, what tribe is he of? Judah. Now to David, God makes another promise that the Messiah specifically will not just be of the tribe of Judah, but specifically he will be an offspring of yours. If you were with us last week, we were in Isaiah chapter 11 talking about what that millennial kingdom looks like. And twice it says it will be of the root of David. In Jeremiah chapter 23, it puts it like this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up a, for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. Jesus, the Messiah, had to be of the tribe of Judah, of David. So fast forward. Jesus is born of Mary. Oh, by the way, part of the reason the incarnation, God becoming man is so important is that he had to fit these pieces. So you read in Matthew and you also read in Luke, Luke the genealogies of Mary, the mother of Jesus, and of Joseph, his earthly father. Guess what? They're both of the tribe of Judah and they both run their lineage through David. He is the one who is worthy because of who he is. And then he goes on and gives us a little another peek here in verse 6. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. So again, what is this imagery? What does it mean? He's got seven horns. Seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God. Well, what he's talking about here is his omnipotence and his omniscience. So a horn in the Old Testament was a sign of power. It was a sign of strength. When you get into the book of Daniel and the prophecies of some of the coming kingdoms, one's looked out like as a ram with two horns. One's looked like as a goat with one horn. It was, it was Greece, right? It's about their power. Even when Israel was being led out through God uh, in, in the Exodus, this is what it says in Numbers 23. God brings them out of Egypt. He is for them like the horns of a wild ox. It spoke to strength. And so when you see seven horns, what he's talking about is his power, his omnipotence. The number seven in the book of Revelation is the idea of completion. God is bringing things. That's why there are seven seals in this book. That's why there will be seven trumpet judgments and then seven bowl judgments. In fact, the word seven is used 55 times in the book of Revelation because it is the sign of completion. God is bringing it all to completion. And this idea that he has seven horns, it is the completion, it is the fullness of power. He is omnipotent. The seven eyes, which he talks about being the seven spirits of God, which ties back to Revelation chapter 1 actually, has the idea that he sees all, he knows, he, he, they look everywhere upon the earth. So he is not only omnipotent, but he is omniscient. He knows all. And because of that, of who he is, he is the one who is worthy to open the seals. He can execute 
what those seals say that he must execute to redeem the world. But he's not just worthy because of who he is. He's also worthy because of what he's done. Right? So, so you go back there to, um, to verse uh, 6. And I saw between the throne and the four living creatures and the elders a lamb, which is not a sheep, not a ram, but a lamb, standing as if slain. Right? So this points us back to Jesus is worthy because he was our Passover lamb, which is one of the most beautiful pictures in all the Bible. I wish we had time. Oh, boy, I really wish we had time. Okay. Um, you go back to Exodus 12. They're coming up out of Egypt. The death angel is going to come, and what they were to do was to take a lamb, a little lamb. The idea is young, one year old. What most people miss about that Passover lamb was he was, they were supposed to take the lamb on the 10th day and that lamb was to live with them as a pet. The cute little lamb in the house for four days to become loved and a part of them. And then they were to take that lamb and they were to slit his throat and catch the blood and put the blood then over the door and on, on the sides so that when the death angel came, he would see the blood. Well, Jesus came and lived with us for 33 years and he was known and he was loved and he was cuddly, except for those who hated him. And then he sheds his blood so that it is applied to the doorpost of our heart and life, the death angel will pass over. What's, what I found really fascinating in this study is, you know, sometimes we go, how come, how come the Jews could not see Jesus as the Messiah? And even today, how can, why are they so blinded? Well, you see, what they get stuck on is the lion. Right, the leader in fact, when, when you think about the lion or the tribe of Judah, well, the tribe of Judah is the lion, but Jesus is the lion of the lions, right? That's what they're looking for, the, the great leader. They don't see the lamb. And what's interesting is in the Old Testament, there's only one verse that ties being a lamb to the Messiah. It's in Isaiah chapter 53. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth, but like a lamb. It's the only verse in the Old Testament. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before it shears, he did not open his mouth. In the Gospels, which again, you think of the, all the pictures of Jesus only mentioned four times. John the Baptist, behold the Lamb of God. Do you know that in the in the book of Revelation itself, the Messiah, Jesus, being described as the Lamb 31 times. You see, he's worthy because of what he's done. But it wasn't just that he died, but that he overcame. Did, did you pick up that verse there, or that word in verse 5? The lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome. So the lamb's not dead, as though he had been slain. So the marks of death are there, but he's standing. He's alive. He's overcome death. And you think of all that Jesus overcame. He overcame death. He overcame the grave. He overcame sin. He overcame Satan. He is the overcomer. He is the one, the only one, who is capable of executing the judgments 
that are contained in the scroll. He alone is the one who is worthy to be able to redeem this world. And so they break into praise, the praise and the worship of the Lamb. You, you begin to look here uh, in, verse, uh, in verse 8. And when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. Right? You go back to chapter 4. Who are they worshiping? The one on the throne. Now they're worshiping the Lamb. Each one holding a harp and golden bowls of, of incense. I, I wish I had more time. But the harp is often used with prophecy. So in the Old Testament... You think of Elisha, who was asked to prophesy. He said, well, go get someone to play the harp for me. Uh, you see it even with King Saul, right? So it's the idea of prophecy of what's to come, but the, but the full of prayers. And, and you think, how did Jesus teach us to pray? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You think for 2,000 years, all the prayers of the saints of your kingdom come, right? Your will be done here on earth. You think of all the prayers of the Old Testament saints that, send the Messiah, and now it is happening. Now it is coming together. So they worship the Lamb. The Lamb is the focus of praise here as they begin to worship. Then what it says is they sing a new song, and by new song, it's the idea that it is new in quality. It's new in, in the sense that you go back to chapter 4, they sang. You have the seraphim singing, holy, holy, holy. Right? They sing about his character of the one who sits on the throne. Then the end of chapter four, they sing another song. It's about you created all things. This is about what he's done. But here in chapter five, this new song, it is the song of redemption. It's the song of redemption. And listen to it. Worthy are you to take the book, to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God. With your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. There's no restriction to, to those who he purchased. He purchased people from every background, every skin color, every part of the world. Can I remind you that he purchased you no matter what you've done in the past? His blood is there and can bring forgiveness of sins. His salvation is open to everyone who will believe. And if you're here today or you're watching online and you've not come to faith in Jesus, Jesus is the only one who is worthy to provide salvation. That's why there is no other name given among men whereby we must be saved but the name of Jesus. But no matter what you've done, where you've come from, he can forgive and he can save, for he alone is worthy. He alone is worthy. And all creation, all creation praises him. I gotta be done. You know, we, we get together on a weekend and you all were singing so beautifully this, this morning. I couldn't help but think, you know, two of the songs, Promises and the first one we sang, Sang God, right? It, was all, it all starts with Abraham, right? It goes, takes us back to those roots. And we're worshiping our God. And folks, you've got to understand that we, we come to sing is not just taking time out of the service. We come to worship. He alone is the one who is worthy of worship. But can I remind you that on that day, what does it tell us? That there are myriads of myriads, which is 10,000. 
10,000 times 10,000 with thousands and thousands that are singing their praise. And you and I are going to be a part of that chorus who know Jesus. And we will be singing his praise. Worthy is the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb. But the beauty is we don't have to wait for that day to praise our God with our lips. We can do it today. Nor do we have to wait for that day to worship him with our life. That's the privilege that we have today. To bow our knees in surrender to live for Jesus with who we are and all that we have. That's why we talk so often about living on mission. God alone is worthy. And we have the privilege, even though we will one day do it with all the saints of all the ages, but today in our life, we can worship 